0: And I think that for kids and teenagers, what all three of those books do is validate both the huge life changing things and the tiny small things like eating sunflower seeds or the made up language that you had when you were a little kid or the silly pet phrases that people have for one another that that specificity is what makes the story authentic. And in some ways this gets back to our our earliest discussion about the Midwest. We tend to think about the Midwest in generalities. We give specificity to other um, settings in our literature, but we just think of the Midwest as the Midwest is the Midwest. And part of telling an authentic story is allowing the specificity of any culture to come through and that every culture um, that you come from, if you bring its specificity to your
1: writing, that's important work to do. Welcome back to Chalk & Ink, the podcast for teachers who write and writers who teach. I'm your host, Kate Narita, author of 100 Bugs Accounting Book and Fourth Grade Teacher. On our last episode, Sandy Stark-McGinnis shone a light on the various parallels between writing and teaching, such as how developing relationships with students is similar to developing relationships with characters. Today, Linda Urban highlights the importance of ditching have-tos and embracing joy. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out how to win a signed copy of one of Linda's books. Congrats to Patricia Tote for winning a signed copy of one of Sandy Stark-McGinnis's books. Patricia, please DM me on Twitter. On today's episode, in addition to ditching have twos, we also talk about the importance of specificity and small moments. Let's get started. Welcome, Linda. I am so thrilled to have you here today on Chalk and Ink. I absolutely cannot wait to have this conversation. I have admired your work for so long, and I just know that you're going to have tons of great information and tidbits to share with us. So thank you so much in advance. i um, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about who you are as a writer and who you are as an educator.
0: Well, we'll start with the varied nuts and bolts. So as an educator currently, uh, I am on faculty at Vermont College of Fine Arts, where I work with master's level students who want to write for children and young adults. So everything from you know, picture books through Upper YA in all the genres and forms that that might entail, and as a writer now, uh, while not doing every genre or form, I'm also writing for all of those age groups now. I have my first young YA out right now, and I started by writing picture books. So that's kind of you know the resume version.
1: I love talking to me. Oh, I love you
0: for saying so. Thank you. We're always most vulnerable about that most recent book. So, thank you for saying so.
1: Yeah, I just we just have to talk about it for a bit. So, okay, I am from the Midwest and so are you, which I I didn't know until I read the book. So, when I started reading the book, I was like, "Okay, where is this taking place? Is it Illinois?" I know she's two hours from Chicago. Is it Wisconsin? Is it Indiana? Is it Michigan? And then I figured out it's, it's Indiana, right? But I knew you were from Michigan. So I was like, okay, where are we? So just the fact that it was set in the Midwest was really exciting for me. I've lived out here for 26 years and I I feel that Massachusetts, central Massachusetts is my home. But having said that, I still feel a strong connection to the Midwest. So and you don't see books set off in very in in, in Indiana. So maybe you could start us off there. Like, why did you decide to set the book in Indiana?
0: Well, in some ways, it's like what you were saying. Yeah, we don't see a ton of Midwestern books. And there's a Midwestern. There are many Midwestern sensibilities. It's ridiculous to say that there is only one, and yet I think it sometimes has its own cultural peculiarities that get overlooked because they are perceived as having a certain sameness mm. um, and and so I wanted that to be reflected in the book, but also there was the very practical matter. I went to Santa school Kate. Oh. <laughs> I did my research by going to actual Santa school. The largest and oldest and most amazing Santa school is in Midland, Michigan. Okay. And so even though I wanted this book to be a Midwestern book, there's no reason to have a Santa school in Michigan, which I know best because the the OG Santa school is right there in the middle of the state. So I had to put it still in the Midwest, but just far enough away.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. and that's perfect. <laughs> there are all these practical considerations when we write, you know? Well, I, I grew up 15 minutes from the Indiana border. So I, uh, I'm in the south suburb of Chicago, but right near the Indiana border. So I was super excited. I was like, oh my gosh, this is set like pretty close to where I grew up. Not exactly where I grew up, but it was very exciting for me.
0: Yay. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. And thanks for saying what you did about the book. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I, I liked writing that one.
1: Yeah. Um, what was the inspiration for it?
0: Uh, well, there's there's never one.
1: Yeah. Inspiration,
0: yeah. right? When you're talking okay. about a novel, and often the true inspiration kind of sneaks up behind mm. me. I don't know why I was inspired to write something when I set out to do it. Yeah. But one of the things was Santa School. I okay. read about this school. Yeah. And here's the thing for for us and for what we also talk about with our students is to pay attention to what you're paying attention to mm. to notice the things that get you kind of excited or mm. curious or or where you momentarily feel like you will die if you don't mm. find out more or do that thing right and so i read this thing about santa school and i had that momentary like total excitement all over like i needed i i was just so curious about it and sometimes when I act on that kind of impulse, it's really good for me. And if I oh, debate wow. about something too long, whether it is the impulse to go research something or to write a story or whether or not something will work, it, it deflates. Mm. And this is one of those times where I really listened to myself. I looked up the school and within one day I had sent in my application and application fee <laughs> to see if I could be a scientist school student. Anyway, the experience was wonderful, and we could talk more about it if you like. but that was one of the things I also had a disastrous first kiss when I was oh, around gosh. the same age as this yeah. protagonist. that was painful uh, you're you're not kidding, sister. <laughs> And so those things came together, but it's it's filled with lots of little bits from my own life and people I know, and all of those things kind of come together in their own inspiration su- stew, you know. And and you, when I'm at my best, I just follow it and I let it bubble.
1: Well, a couple of things I want to say. First of all, if you're looking for, I would say, a fun, light read, you definitely want to pick up "Talk Santa to Me." Anyone who's listening to this who needs a pick-me-up should pick up that book. It's just fabulous. It's a ton of fun to read I highly highly recommend it um, <laughs> the other thing I want to say is a little bit deeper than that I was looking at Kate Messner's website before we began talking looking at one of the mini lessons that you did uh, for you know for the writing camp that she does for teachers and educators over the summer and it was all about a writer's notebook and you know as you said pay attention to what you're paying attention to it's really interesting the episode that i just released yesterday was sally engelfried she talked a lot about her writer's notebook and it was really interesting to me to think about that because i kind of have anxiety around this whole idea of a writer's notebook um, like that it has to be a certain way or it should be a certain way right and I, and i've been writing for a long time you know i've been writing for for 18 years i shouldn't have this like Anxiety around it, but honestly, I still do. I still have anxiety about it. And then I was looking at that gorgeous post that you did on Kate's website, and I was like, We really need more of this of people being open and honest about what's in their writer's workshop notebook. And you talked about in there, like, you just started instead of like thinking it has to be perfect, just oh, I wrote Papa John's in the notebook, I'm just going (laughs) with it. I don't need to cross that out, I can leave it there. And I think people really need to just talk more about that, like, a writer's notebook doesn't have to be any certain thing no it's it's a it's a it's job first of all is to exist
0: that's it that's its job and if you have put some something in it words doodles a coffee spill it that's what it's supposed to do uh when we think of it as a piece of performance right it gets that's totally it it, it stops you from being able to put anything else Mm -hmm. in there and it's such a useful tool for noticing what you're noticing for but also you know this is I'm showing on a screen right now that nobody else can see just a page of scribbles and circles and arrows that was a really useful tool to me on that day if I go back to it today most of it's not going to be useful it doesn't need to be You know, we don't need to return to it and make sense of it and use it constantly. It's a way of processing on the page what you're noticing, doing, thinking, need to get out, need to retain now. And that's its purpose as a tool. And if we can use it that way, so much more good can come from them.
1: Right. And I think just having like having faith and maybe like celebrating yourself too, like just celebrating like I have a writer's notebook, you know? never mind like what's in it like i have one i'm using it and that alone in itself is something that we can celebrate instead of being like you know as you said having it be some kind of performance tool that's going to be graded like i should have this in it or i should have that in that instead of just existing as it is
0: i love writers notebooks that are filled with
1: color
0: and you know that are that are beautiful if, and if that is where your juice gets created then fine but for me the minute um that I'm following a list of things I should do or even could do.
1: Mm. It stops
0: being the processing place that it's supposed to be for me. Mm,
1: that's really interesting. Should or could, right? Yeah. yeah. Even, you know, could. I've been to brilliant lectures by people who, who
0: show like, um, you know, I traced my hand and I colored it in and I made a map of all of the, and all that stuff is so awesome, except... For me to do it is inauthentic.
1: Yeah. It is performance for me. Yeah. I, I think that's what it is. I think that's what my hang up is, is just getting out of that space is this is my notebook. It doesn't have to look like anybody else's or have anybody else's things in there. And it doesn't matter what's in there, you know. And I think the other interesting thing, too, and I don't know if this ha- has happened to you, but... um, maybe you're a lot healthier psychological person than me <laughs> but sometimes i'll feel like a failure like i'll start a writers notebook and then i'll stop writing in it and then i'll be like oh my gosh like once again like i have like gotten the f in the writers like notebook like you know um but then when it's funny at the other times so i'll look back and i have all these notebooks around the house and they have a lot of stuff in them so i i, I haven't like failed like the writers notebook not that there is any you know <laughs> rubric for that but it's just it's just so interesting to me so i just i really enjoyed your post and i'm glad we're taking some time to talk about it because i think that's what it is it has to be authentic for each person and that's all that matters
0: uh, but i can't tell you until i had the writers notebook where i finally like where i made the mistake and then just kept going i must have a dozen where there's like five pages of writing and then it stops and that somehow i couldn't go back and just Two years later, just keep going as it without acknowledging, you know, it's been two years and this time I'm going to have a daily practice. No, it's paper. You put right. marks on it that have meaning for you in the moment.
1: Right, right, right. <laughs> um, so you have a lot of wonderful information on your website about more about how you, like your writing history, you know, you had the... the story from the shoebox perspective that had to battle the evil potato chip. (laughs) And I have never heard of an evil potato chip, Linda. You just have to expand a little bit on that for me. Well, all
0: right. It was not a potato chip that was evil. It was the Pringles container. The shoebox fights the, I mean, that would be silly to fight a potato chip. It was the Pringles container that was the villain. And it's always villainous if
1: it's empty. Oh, of course. That, that is one bad potato chip. That is
0: a bad container. <laughs> Hollow.
1: And then you were the marketing director of Romans for 10 years, right? It and was. then it sounds like that kind of, and, and then you had a child, it was two, and that kind of catapulted you into your writing again. Could you talk more about that for us?
0: Yeah, sure. I, one of the things that still honestly gets in my way as a writer and I know gets in the way of my students is when um, there's this belief that you, that it has to count, that it has to be good right away. That you, that you there's even this reluctance to call oneself a writer mm, somehow yeah. if you haven't had the external validation of, of publishing or even if you haven't published in a while. I mean, it's yeah. ridiculous what yeah. we do to ourselves but i did that to myself for a very very long time okay during part of that time i was marketing director at roman's bookstore and i wasn't writing at all except i was writing tons and tons of promotional copy sure was marketing the work of other people who weren't afraid to call themselves writers and sat down (laughs) and and i wasn't a frustrated writer at the time it's just i had honestly not thought that I could, could do that. Right. And yet there I was at Romans, we had a very active, um, author calendar. And so there were, there were most months out of the year, I was hosting four to six author events a week. Wow. A week, a week. Um, it was very busy calendar. And not everybody was, was, would have called themselves a writer either. I mean, we had a lot of, it was in Southern California. We had a lot of, um, scientists from caltech and we had celebrities and whatever but we also had a huge number of people who would call themselves writers and every night i listened to those folks talk about their process or their inspiration and i think i got a little secret mfa okay years right yeah right and but you do reach a point where you think, where that little drive that you had maybe as a kid or at some point in your life where you think, well, okay, I could do this, but I'm going to do it secretly. <laughs> I'm not going to tell anyone, which is what I did, right? So I I um I had a little infant, and she would sleep to a certain part of the day. I was still working at Romans. My husband was asleep, but I would sneak out of bed at 4.30 and I'd write for about 45 minutes. And that was my sort of writer identity, even though I would never have said so. Right, right. Um, and I was writing picture books at at the time. And I finally got to the stage where I actually liked something that I had written kind okay. of a lot. And okay. where I wanted to share it with, with people. Mm-hmm. And I found one person that I felt like I could trust who wouldn't think I was, you know, f- foolish right for trying this right and she also worked at the bookstore she also had a little one and was reading as many picture books as i was and when jody said you know this is pretty good but it's not perfect like she had thoughts about it so she took me seriously as a writer it sort of turned things for me and that is how Mm. uh, that combined with the bunch of other life moments getting ready a career change for my husband, and moving across country. And, you know, I thought, okay, here we go. Maybe we, really we won't call ourselves a writer exactly yet, but we still might try to get something published, see if someone else will call us a writer.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's really interesting, right? To find someone that you trust that will take your dreams seriously. You know, I think that's, that's very critical. It, it
0: sometimes we really do need that That external validation, as much as we want things to come from within, and and that's really important and is important to get to that stage as a writer, we do need somebody else that we trust to say, "Yeah, you're on the right track. Or, oh my God, that is a cliff. (laughs) You're approaching a cliff. I'm not saying you
1: can't fly, but come back a little bit and we'll see what wings (laughs) we can find for you. So what about your teaching journey? How did you get into teaching?
0: Well, I actually taught kind of before I wrote, but I just wasn't teaching. Well, I guess I was teaching writing. So I have a master's degree in English from Wayne State University in Detroit and uh, was teaching uh, freshman composition okay. while I was there and totally untrained. Those poor okay. students, <laughs> I, really, I such a disservice sometimes that we do to college students in their freshman year. Um, oh yeah. But,
1: yeah. Well, I, I, <laughs> we could we could spend hours talking about disservices that are done to students. So, yes. um,
0: but I did put my heart into it. I did go seek help from others when I needed it, which is one of the things that I have learned is most crucial to teaching. Definitely, is acknowledging what you don't know, finding people who maybe do know those things. Um, and working with you, like learning alongside your students, oh, those things so that powerful. neither of you are entirely sure about, mm-hmm. that has been one of the best lessons for me as a as a teacher and as a person,
1: right? yeah, I, I completely agree we ha- we have a new math program this year, and it is <laughs> something else, and so every day, I feel like I'm learning alongside of them, you know, but it's 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 very enriching. Um, to do that, because it's just a reminder how much there is out there in the world to learn, and it's a reminder of how important it is to be vulnerable, right? And to model that and be like, okay, I made a mistake there, or I didn't understand that, you know. And I think it's so important that students see that from the person who is in the teaching position as well.
0: Well, and I'm lucky enough now to be working with master students, so I'm working with adults, which is a little different than if I was working with twelve-year-olds or sixteen-year-olds or whatever. But I can say. I'm not really sure about this particular kind of chapter book. Right. How about you go do some research? I'll go do some research and we'll compare notes and see what we can learn together. And we all know that the, one of the best ways to learn something is to try to teach it. So mm-hmm. engaging our my students in the same activity that I am engaged in, we learn from each other. Um, and it's a master's it's an MFA, so it's a terminal degree. It's supposed to qualify them to teach as well. Sure. So, you know, the more opportunities I give them to teach me, like I'm the better, right? <laughs> that's, that's better for them. <laughs> but um in between the two, I also was a TA teaching assistant at UCLA during my ill-fated PhD in film and learned okay. a lot there about how you can give a student who knows nothing yet a set of tools oh right and then so so for film study, I mean it was at u c l a there are a lot of people there who are already familiar with the film industry, but even just giving them the tools of like this is a this is what an edit is this is what a shot is, a long shot, a medium shot, and a a, a close up and how they're traditionally used. Now let's just watch some films and see what we can make out of just those small little components. And we do the same thing when we are reading mentor texts, Mm -hmm. right? Right, we're saying, I bet you haven't thought a lot about setting and the language that's used for setting. Let's read three pages. Let's see how setting works. And then let's try it ourselves yeah uh, we do that at all levels, whether we are writing with eight year olds or you know sixty eight year olds.
1: Yeah, I'm always amazed. Every year we read The Tiger Rising and <laughs> yeah wow I mean the the skill in that book, I mean we just we just finished reading the page where he comes back into the hotel room and he's been with Sistine and he comes back and the motel room is, is dark and it's like a cave. And then the next position, the next paragraph is a juxtaposition of when his mom was alive and they strung the house with a thousand lights. It looked like a constellation. And so I broke it down with my students. I'm like, look at the compare and contrast here. I just said, this is just a gorgeous piece, you know, of writing. But if someone doesn't point that out to you, how how would you know, right? And I and I explained to them, I said, you can do the same thing in your writing, right? Juxtapose the characters' emotions with, you know, and show that through setting. But if it's not pointed out, you you may read that book as many times as you want and not see it. And once it's
0: pointed out, then they have this tool that they can use, you know, whether they're reading Captain Underpants or, you know, Octavian Nothing, right? They're they're still looking for the idea of juxtaposition as a moment of meaning making. Yeah, right. Oh, that's a tool now that I have. And, and right. so- I loved that. And I love doing that with my students. And I love when my students do that for me in their essays, right?
1: Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, we just talked a lot about your teaching there. And I'm wondering how your teaching affects your writing. You gave that example of, I don't know that much about that picture book. I'm going to, you know, let's find out together. I'm wondering if one of those moments has actually turned into a project for you at all. Probably
0: Okay. It's, sure. It, one of the ch- one of the real challenges for me personally as a writer is if I am too aware of the analytical side of things, mm. if I'm too aware of the inspiration, if I'm mm. too aware of the craft element, okay, if sure. I'm too aware of um, what I'm setting out to do, it, it's a total roadblock for me. So, okay. what I need to do is like learn those things, and then sort of put them behind me and let them come through my subconscious. That said, yeah. you know we have some pretty brilliant students at the. yeah, and every one of them gives a graduate lecture mm. on something that they have spent a year. Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about, writing about, and then distilling in a way that a room full of 120 others can have a takeaway, right? Something that they can use. And I have heard, I can point to at least three or four graduate student lectures that came together in the, my most recent middle grade is called Almost There and Almost Not. And there is a a ghost dog. Thank you for holding those of you yes. listening don't know that ghost dog really held up on the screen and <laughs> there's a ghost dog, and I know that that ghost dog seed was planted actually in a lecture about
1: monsters. Oh, interesting.
0: And a care and a student lecture about where monsters come from, what they can do in literature, what they can embody. And what they can say about the character who perceives them. Now, a ghost dog is not a monster. Sure. And yet there was a little something in my head. I re- I drew, I remember actually I drew in my writer's notebook. I tried to draw a monster. It came out looking like kind of a dog. And I wrote <laughs> next to it, what about a dog that eats all your words? Oh. And if I you love that idea, a little grade novel... That is not what happens. And yeah. yet there is a, an invisible ghost dog who brings pieces of someone else's writing from time to time to our protagonist. And And so I know that my students' thoughts, our students' thoughts and their their analysis and their work inspires a lot of my own. Just takes That's- a while.
1: Definitely. I have to say something and I should have marked the page. I know I took a picture, but I don't want to scroll through my phone to find the page number, but, um, we lost our dog in May and he was my best friend. And I know that's cliche, but it's the truth. He, he and I were super, super close. Um, and, uh, anyways, you've got that lovely scene in there where she falls asleep and she feels the dog in the, in the crook of her legs and just knows everything in the world is going to be all right. And that is exactly how I felt sleeping with my dog. Like anytime we slept together and he would rest his muzzle like on my my calves, I just knew that the world was going to be okay. And I have never seen that expressed in a book before. And I cannot tell you like how much that warmed my heart because that is how I felt with him. You know, um, we don't have another dog right now. I'm not quite ready, but um, probably like um, in the springtime or summer. But there is something about that feeling. I I don't know what it is, but oh my gosh, it is one of the most powerful feelings in the world. So thank you for putting it in a book because I think people need to see those feelings um, expressed on the page. I think that's one of the gifts that books give us. And so thank you very much for that just exquisite scene.
0: You are welcome. And also, I'm sorry. Yeah. And I do. (laughs) there is... I, I think the connection I want to make to that, besides the fact that dogs are wonderful and they do root us, yeah. and, and give us, yeah, yeah, a, and center us, <laughs> and all those other things, is isn't that though just such a small moment? Yes, it's it such is. a small moment. And I, I, what it, I love that you brought it up because for me that is what writing is about. For other people. And books I love. It is about high concept. (laughs) It's about adventure. It's about, you know, a really unique perspective on the world. And I love writers who come at their work in that way and tell that story. I feel like what I do is tiny little moments, maybe strung together like Christmas lights, right? And you hope that that lights up something larger and has a story to tell. But when you get those teeny moments right, or you it's feel unique. them as you write them. That's that's for me where part of the reward is, and also what I hope is meaningful to readers. So I'm well, glad that it did for you.
1: Yeah, it was it was incredible for me. So thank you very much. It was very cathartic. Um, and I I just everyone who's listening. So I I do have a new family member in my household. So I've been ex- really busy this week. So I'm not as well prepared for Linda's interview as I would like to be. But so I'm going to sound a little bit unprepared here. But In one of Kate Messner's teaching books, Linda has this gorgeous um, entry in there about how to slow down time. And I used that um, in my draft and my critique partner was like, this is amazing. Like, what did you do here? And I said, I followed Linda Urban's advice and I slowed down time. (laughs) And so I think that, you know, that's definitely for me in that book, Almost There and Almost Not, it was definitely a a slowing down the time moment. Um, you know, so I think that also goes along with what you're saying. It's a different way of looking at a small moment of actually slowing down the time. And I don't know if that was for you when you wrote it, but that's what I, when I read that in Kate Messner's book, and then I tried your exercise there. Um, It did make me think about that when I was reading that scene too, and almost there and almost not. I'm so
0: glad. Thank, I'm glad it was useful to you. It is something that I do a lot with um, certain students too, is like, Uh, especially folks who are writing like really episodic things and everything has the same sort of beat and the same feeling of importance. Yeah. Okay. I want you to write this very same thing. uh, Choose one moment and expand that moment to twice the length of everything else. No, you're not going to use this all, but like do that. Okay. Now I want you to do this scene and I want you to condense it to one third of itself. Just and you're going to that means you're going to have to summarize and that means you're going to have to leave things out. How do you leave things out without losing the emotion? And so that's a really good exercise, too, about like, what would you avoid saying but still sneaks through? Um, Mm. So that expansion and contraction of time is something I find really beneficial to experiment with in my own writing, too. When a scene isn't working, like, let's try it written at 6,000 feet. Let's try it written with a microscope. Let's try it written in the greatest expanded version of itself. Let's try writing it if we had to write the whole thing in 60 words.
1: That's really interesting. So you try it like five different ways and see like which length works the best for that scene.
0: Or what each exercise teaches you. Right. Cause, and, and this is also important to me, too. And I don't do it as often as I should, because just like everybody else, I get caught up in this idea of I only have so much time and this has to count. And I have it to. And when I think like that, all my writing is just it doesn't work very well. But <laughs> when I can do that experiment that I just described, I learn new things about that scene each time. And sometimes one of those is going to be a keeper. But just sure. as often. I'm going to learn something about that character or that moment or a key element in that scene or an object that will crack open everything else. And it will be the thing that ends up making the more direct version count.
1: That's really interesting. You know, that, I mean, I I kind of feel like that mirrors your writer's notebook process, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's not about, It's not about the exercise itself leading to where you want to go. It's about what you get from actually doing the exercise that brings you where you want to go.
0: And this can be so hard. And I have such sympathy for my master's level students in particular, because a lot of those people are making huge sacrifices in order to be in this program. Many of them are parents of young people or they're recently retired and they're they're feeling that pressure of time and I have to do this thing that and they're spending so much money and, and all of that and so often for those students it can be really hard to say what you mean you want me to write this scene four different ways right. and one of them isn't going to be right like there isn't necessarily going to be the one right one when I'm done like that is 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 so frustrating for so many And yet it's the exact mindset that brings out some of our very best work.
1: Sure. Sure. And also it's just reality. I mean, you know, I I tell my students, I don't ever want to hear you're not going to write it more than once because I've been working on the same novel for, you know, 10 years. So don't complain to me about it. Sorry. Not going to listen, not to a single word. So, (laughs) but you know, it's the truth. It's like, you're going to rewrite it at least four times, you know, four times. That's just the beginning. I mean, of course, maybe you don't want to say that, right? Because-
0: <laughs> now, but but we're talking. The people listening are probably not your students. So I'll <laughs> say three of my novels, my published novels, were picture books first. Interesting. I thought that's what they were. Yeah. And the the two my first two published novels. And so okay, we can say well, she just didn't know what she was doing yet.
1: But even I doubt that's true.
0: <laughs> to <laughs> me had it. The first thing I thought I might publish was a picture book about Santa school. Oh, interesting. Wow. It turns out publishers do not want to mess with the idea of Santa for young people.
1: Oh, no, no. You've got to no.
0: believe in Santa when you're young. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I like that about your book, too. I don't want to go into that either on the podcast, because actually sometimes my students do listen. <gasps> okay. But, um, yes. But I thought that was really nicely done in your book, too. So Thank yeah. you. Yeah, really nicely done. Was Milo Speck originally going to be a picture book?
0: No, Milo came about really differently. My my uh, son Jack, yeah, I think he was nine ish at about that time, and he said to me, "You know, you have this center of everything, hound dog, true and cookie kit. That's nice, but I want a book for me." Oh, cute! <laughs> and I said, "What's a book for you?" And he said, "I want a book with ham
1: in it." Oh my god! I was like,
0: ham. Like, like lunch meat? Damn, like, said so no, humor, action, and mystery.
1: Oh, I love that.
0: Isn't that great? But oh here's the gosh. thing, Kate, my immediate response, which I did not say out loud, but my, everything inside me said, oh, that is too bad because I can't do that. That's not what I do. I write introspective books, you know, that take place in ever decreasing time frames And um, I can't <laughs> do that. But there was Jack asking me for it. And I thought, you know, every day I send Jack to school to do stuff that he does not know how to do.
1: That's that true. he
0: has no choice in. Right, and right. he has to get over that and try.
1: Right, so right. I
0: will get over myself and I will try. And when I started, I wasn't thinking about it as a published publishable work. I just thought, okay, "Okay, I'll try writing something for Jack. And Jack actually was my editor on that book. He read every word. He told me when I was not funny and when I was. And um, yeah, so that was, that was under a very different set of constraints. And it it also started though, with this idea that it, it went really well when I thought it didn't have to count. And then when my editor asked me, what are you working on? And I sent her like 40 pages. she's like, oh, this could be good. I would like to see this. Then it counted. And once again, I was faced with
1: the idea that I don't know what I'm doing.
0: And it was hard. It was really hard.
1: I'm so grateful to Linda for talking about how her son helped her out. The truth is we all need help at times. And if we ask for it, we're more likely to get it. To show you just how much I need your help rating the show and writing reviews wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm going to compare and contrast Chalk and Ink's reviews and ratings with Creative Pep Talk's reviews and ratings. Why? Because for our celebratory 50th episode, I will be interviewing Andy J Pizza, the amazing creator of Creative Pep Talk. Without him, this podcast wouldn't exist. Tune in on January 13th to find out more about that. For now, Let's get back to the numbers. On Apple's podcast app, Creative Pep Talk has 36 written reviews in 2022 and 1,786 ratings overall. In total, Chalk and Ink has two written reviews and five ratings. Can you help me close the gap and get Chalk and Ink's written reviews into double digits before January 13th? Many thanks to Floating Home Life for writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Because of you and Grape Apes, Chalk and Ink has two reviews. Floating Home Life wrote, What a great show. I love the way Kate asked for specific, practical advice for writers and teachers. Floating Home Life, you totally made my day. Thanks in advance for joining Grape Apes and Floating Home Life and writing a review. Let's get back to the show and hear how Linda persevered and published Milo Speck, Accidental Agent. So how did you... How did you get over that? So it was easy at first when it didn't count. And then your editor became interested and it was really hard. So how did you work through that? That's fascinating to me.
0: Well, I will tell you what I did and it is not what I recommend. Okay. (laughs) How about that? Um, Here's the thing. And this goes along with this idea that uh, that we've been talking about with this idea of could and should or that there's a right way. Yeah. So as I said, I don't really write or hadn't really written a lot of action, Mm -hmm. right, and adventure and and all. And so I instantly went to way too many craft books that had all the right rules in to figure out what I was supposed to do. And so many people say things like, see it as a movie in your head and just type down what follows, right? Yeah. And so I did that until I got to the end and I read it and it was... It was so dispiriting to me because even though I knew what happened, nothing about what I read on the page was stuff that I value in my own self as a writer. So the things that I like about me as a writer and that bring me joy as I write are dialogue, voice, some kinds of certain kinds of humor. And none of that was in a draft that is just watch it and write, type down what you see. Mm -hmm. What I ended up with was a bunch of stage directions, really. Oh, interesting. And nothing that brought me joy. And to revise from that place for me was one of the hardest things I've had to do writing-wise because there was nothing to my mind. You know, people talk about, oh, you have to have the clay and then you can mold it, right? This wasn't even clay, it wasn't something I wanted to put my hands in and work with. Oh no. And I've had to revise a lot of things that were very voicey and then needed help with the plot, but at least I could enjoy my own writing. For other people, people who are um who maybe love that action adventure part and love seeing the movie, adding the voice and stuff is gonna be fine because what they love is right there to work with. It's just sure. for me, it was the opposite. And I really I, I will. I won't write a book. Well, I'll never say never because we do learn things about ourselves all the time, and it's it's worth like trying things again. But um, that strategy is not one that I will that I think I would turn to a, again.
1: So, did you just I, put the whole thing aside and start over?
0: What did I do? I think I've blocked a lot of it out of my brain. Kate, what <laughs> <laughs> experience was like. But yeah, I do think that what I had to do was sort of. I've never done like what Gary Schmidt or Cindy Lord do, which is they write the whole thing and then they pff, never look at it. They throw okay. it away. I think Gary burns his, maybe. I'm not entirely sure. But um, <laughs> but I would sort of like read it, kind of know what was there, maybe do some notes about what was in that chapter and then see if I could, re- if I could tell it
1: again. Okay. Okay. But I
0: really needed to tell it Rather than revise. Right. Yeah. Does right. that make yeah. sense?
1: You no, know, it does make sense. Yeah. yeah. So almost like the first draft wasn't a first draft. More like the first draft was like notes for the In some, some ways that's exactly draft. what it was.
0: And yeah. and for a lot of people that's really useful. And for me, it, it became its own roadblock for a while.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I could see that. I could see that. So what about Little Red Henry? We haven't talked about that one yet. I know we won't be able to talk about all of them, but I love Little Red Henry. So let's talk about Little Red Henry. <laughs>
0: Thank you. I, I really like that book. And for people who don't know it, it is, it is a story of a kid who perhaps has some helicopterish parents, family, mm, mm. Um, who really just wants an opportunity to, to do things for himself. And, and part of the inspiration for that is right there in that title. But this is how it came about. So this was when Jack, my son, was still in preschool. And I was in there volunteering one day when all the kids – I live in Vermont – it's snowy, recess, it doesn't matter if it's cold and snowy, you go outside for recess. So it was recess time for the preschoolers and they had to go out in the hallway and put on all the snow gear, right? Oh, had hat, scarf, <laughs> mitten, boots, snow pants. And there was a, a kid there who was doing their absolute best to get that that snow coat on and they had their leg right in there in that sleeve. <laughs> Right the boat, Like right in there deep rather than like. And so I said, oh, oh, honey, let me. And they were like, I can do it myself. And, you know, it was so it was way more important that they be able to do it themselves than that they actually get the thing on and go outside. And I saw yes. that. And then the very same afternoon, Mrs. Parker read aloud the little red hen story where she's asking for help. And everyone's saying, "You know, you're on your own, yeah, right, right, but right, right. And the two kind of came together to inspire that that story.
1: I love that. Thank you for sharing that. So you've talked about some of the breakthrough moments in your writing, but how about with your with your teaching?
0: Yeah, the biggest breakthrough moment in all honesty is one that I keep having to have over and over. <laughs> And it is the recognition that it is that it's a, that I don't have to be an oracle, right? Sure. Now I'm I'm working with again adults, and some of them enter the program because they they want to prove st- something to themselves, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. they are writers or they can do this, or that they aren't writers and they can't do this because oh, this is something they're also asking themselves when they come in. And and there is this pressure to sort of look at someone's work and say, ah yes, I understand you. You are a writer and you are a writer who can do this and here's how it and and that is such a mistake, right? Yeah. It's just such a trap to 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 think that you have that kind of wisdom and insight and you can tell a person exactly what they need to hear in order to be who exactly who they want to be. And um, the breakthrough every time is about being a better listener,
1: interesting mm-hmm.
0: and giving opportunities for them to teach themselves. Mm-hmm. um that doesn't mean that I just sit back all the time. I reflect no. when I'm reading, I try to give exercises and challenges that I think will expose uh new views of themselves to themselves through their writing. We do try to make their writing better. We work really hard together to do that, but that pressure to somehow be you know, to be the wise one who can see all and say exactly the right thing at the right time, like remembering that all the time. That's when that our sounds, best. Yeah, that's when that's my sounds, best teaching happens. And I think that's when best learning happens, too.
1: That sounds really stressful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that
0: people, you must feel it, too. Right. you You must feel from time to time. Like a, you like, if you say the wrong thing to that particular student at that moment, I don't know, it's just a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure yeah. to being a teacher and to knowing that you have people's hopes and yeah. um, identities to some degree in your hands when really what you might be good at is, you know, is the point of view (laughs) right (laughs) Right? and so like not falling into that trap yeah of of either believing you can do a this for them or letting them believe that you can do that you know just Mm. being somebody on a, a few steps ahead of you on a path giving you some insight about what's ahead so that you can judge for yourself like that is what it feels like it's about
1: Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, we could talk a lot about all those things. I mean, I think for, you know, for me as an elementary school teacher, the pressure is that someone else's child. And I think I didn't really understand that until I became a parent. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that is the biggest pressure is, you know, someone else is trusting you with their, their biggest treasure, right. Uh, to celebrate them right every day to celebrate them and to develop the relationship. And that, that is the foundation of what I do. And the academics is, you know, is second, you know, having said that, I think academics is really important and um, very, I'm a very intense person, like type, whatever, (laughs) triple A times cubed or whatever. (laughs) And so so how do you do that, Kate? How
0: do you do that when you know that a student maybe has to learn a particular skill or, or area of content?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I've, um, <clears throat> yeah, that's interesting. So I've, I've had a challenging week at school. It's been like a double, double whammy this week, like school, home. <laughs> and that's how life works. I mean, so, you know, I had a conversation yesterday in school with my whole class that, <clears throat> that I'm here to help everybody learn, right? And that, and that we all have things that we can learn and we all have different strengths, And so I gave an example of how, you know, I'm the only person in my family who's published a book, but that that doesn't mean that I'm smarter than anybody else in my family and that how, you know, everyone else in my family is much better at math than I am, but that doesn't mean that they're smarter than me either and that I'm going to be working with people. My job is to help everyone get better at something and then that I can do that. And so I'm be working with people all year long and it's not that when I'm working with you, I think you're dumb. Because that was what one of my students said this week was that um, that I thought that they were dumb, so which is not true, right, And so I think it's really hard we're all so hard on ourselves sometimes, and we all think maybe if someone's working with us, it's because you know we're lesser than instead of looking at when the teacher works with you it's like you said earlier a little bit when you talked about showing your writing to that person like oh someone believes in me enough to give me feedback and so that's what I tried to express on Friday that when I'm working with you it's because I I believe in you right I I believe that I can help you and that that we can get better together but I don't know that I do that well I mean that's what I try to do right but um you know i all I can do it, is also try my best, you know, and I'm one person with twenty three nine year olds um you know, and so i I greet my students every day at the door I stand outside, and we have like a mood meter, and I do ask them every day how they're doing um and so I do think that check in in the morning is super important um so yeah, so every year I do some some things differently, but that's something I do every year, so um and each group is different. So, you know, we're still in the beginning of the year, we're recording this, you know, towards the end of October. And so we're just kind of figuring out who we are as a group. And I would say that the new math curriculum has taken away from that a little bit because I was really, um, adept at teaching the old math curriculum. And I really had a um, routine, you know, that gelled for my classroom and this teaching this new curriculum has taken so much of my time and energy. And I haven't quite figured out how to, um, kind of incorporate that, like who I am as a teacher yet. And it's just taking up so much time. So I would say this year is particularly challenging in that way, but I just try to reinforce over and over again, that I believe in everyone, that everyone in my classroom is special, that every one of us is here to do something special in the world. And we're going to work on, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what that is, you know, together and to move toward it, to give them the skills they need to move toward whatever that is, you know, um, And I give them examples of, you know, times when I've struggled and successes that I've had, you know, through struggling. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, writing is one of my favorite areas to teach, because I have a lot of specific examples that I can share of ways that I've struggled and, um, you know, breakthrough moments I've had. Or, um, you know, I found this where it says this fact about this animal. And over here, it says this fact about that animal and like, which one is true? And, you know, how are we going to figure it out? So I think I try to just be vulnerable with my students. I mean, I I try to do a better job the next day when I go in <laughs> than I did. The but day you before. have it a lot. You have it a lot harder
0: than <laughs> I do. And I I one of the great things about the way that the Lowe's residency program at VCFA is structured is you know we have this intensive ten days of residency where our students here most of our factual faculty either give a lecture or be on a panel or do a seminar and it's super intense and then we have workshop for a number of days where we're taking apart work and putting it back together or whatever but then for six months i work with five students Right. And those students write me letters and they do that mood check in that you're talking about. Like, this is what I've been dealing with emotionally and identity wise and and writing wise. And I still don't understand objective correlative. And, you know, they, they go through it in a letter so that I can understand what it is they most want to get out of this experience and where they see their challenges. And 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 then I get to address their work. And I get to do that over, you know, over a couple of days and really settle in and, and that, that mood check that knowing what they want out of the experience is really, really helpful to being a good advisor um, in this program. And it's what you're doing every single day.
1: Well, not not, in, not at that level, right? But yeah, I mean, it is. it does give me, it does make my classroom better each day because I know coming in as a child tired, you know, did something happen on the bus? Um, you know, did something happen at home last night? You know, so I, I know those things and it does help me, I don't know, just kind of guides my interactions with them a little bit throughout the day. So, um, and also as you get to know your students too, you kind of know what their challenges are. And so they might not tell you, exactly like a stranger might hear what they're saying and not know what they're telling you, but because you know them and you've been paying attention to them and who they are, you're able to infer something that someone who would just be walking by would hear one thing and you know, it really means something different. So um I think that's the other benefit of those daily check-ins is that um, you get to know what they're telling you outside of what they're really telling you. Yes. You get to be good readers of subtext. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So (laughs) what's a, what's an activity that you've used with your students that, you know, listeners might be able to try with their own students?
0: Oh, hmm. Okay. So I have had a student, actually I've had a couple of students who are real perfectionists Oh. And and told I don't me know as much. Like that, Nobody, uh, and and they too would face that thing about how it had to count, right? And it, yeah. but but because they were perfectionists, it like really had to count. And um, one in particular wrote this. There was a really good picture book hidden in twelve hundred words, right? It right. probably needed <laughs> to be a lot less. But I also knew that if I in my letter wrote back to her, you know, here is what typical picture books are like, and here's what she could do, that she would obsess about that. And that I might never even see that manuscript again. So what I did was I wrote back to her instantly. And I just said, do you have an hour right now? She said, yes. And I said, okay, cut this in half. Send it back to me with 800 words. You have one hour. Oh, well, then she didn't have time to be a perfectionist, right? Like she just kind of had to do it. And she got back to me within an hour, and I said, "Stay, stay. Do you have another? You have a half hour available?" And She said, "Yes." And so I read through it. I said, "Okay, now cut 200 words more." <laughs> and she did. And then I'm like, "Okay, we only have like 15 minutes. Cut 10 words, just 10." And but by doing that activity of of making her do something within a particular time frame, so that she didn't have time to be a perfectionist, she got this brilliant picture book that didn't have all of the um, uh, hedging and covering your own, covering your butt kind of writing around. Yes. Like she got right down to it and it got better and better. And then from, you know, from the really cutback version, then she could go on and be a perfectionist if, she, perfectionist if she wanted to. But there was something about like, obviously it's not going to count if you only have an hour. Right. Like, right. Let's just do it real quick. <laughs> and let's do it real quick, and let's do it. Let's make small changes really quickly, um, and then let's see—is that something that you could add to your practice? Could you promise that. yourself that you will do, you know, a twenty-minute challenge a day where you do X, whatever it is, where you write without the uh, delete key? Sure, sure. Or where you're these kinds of all the time. It's about these little tricks. Sure. That we have to do to ourselves in order to not get ourselves gummed up. So that is one. Uh, how it would apply in your classroom. You know, I, I, I'm watching um, my son write his college essays.
1: Oh, right gosh. Now.
0: And he's pretty good at this. But I know he has peers who really cannot even start that essay. Yeah. Because so much is writing on it. Yeah. But setting a timer for 30 minutes and saying, just fill up this page and then you can go back. And I know that goes against what I just said about closing your eyes and seeing the scene and typing it down, and yet it still might be really useful for some.
1: I, I think, well, for me, I love the timer. I'm kind of timer obsessed. So not so much with my writing, but just kind of everywhere, every area of life. Like I get overwhelmed. I think oh, I've got to clean the house. And I'm like, oh, there's no way I can clean the house. But I set the timer for 30 minutes and clean the house. And it's amazing when I get done in 30 minutes. And so I think you're right. I think setting the timer can be a really freeing, you know, exercise. But in the classroom, you could do the same thing. Um, I mean, usually it's the reverse, like in the elementary school classroom, they need to expand, you know, there's not enough on the page, but you could do the same thing. Okay, you know, we have 15 minutes, how much more could you add to the story in 15 minutes, right? Instead of saying, you need to add a page, which might be, might be stifling, like make it like a contest, how much more can you add in the 15 minutes, you know? Um, so I think you could kind of reverse it for the elementary school set.
0: Do you have time for one more? Because you made me think of something that I did in an online school visit not that long ago. And then because that went so well, I tried it with my master's students who also needed to expand something, right? So what we did was we drew almost like a timeline, but we didn't make it straight. It could squiggle again, getting rid of perfection and put a little dot on the line and then write down what happens in that dot. So let's say you've got a character who's going to go home and have dinner and dinner is going to be really fraught, right? I think okay. that's an important scene. And right now in your student writing, it says, um, Joe sat down in his spaghetti and his parents fought and he was sad and he went to his room. Yep. So on the dot, you choose one moment in there, like, and you tell him to make it the smallest possible moment. So it's, uh, stabbing the meatball with the fork, Mm. right? You identify that. And then you say you make a little leap in time. You put another dot um, right before it. What has to happen right before then in order for him to be able to stab the meatball?
1: Oh, I love that. Right?
0: Well, okay. Mom has to put the, the mom or dad puts the spaghetti on the plate. Okay, right. Mom puts the spaghetti on the plate and write down one sense that goes along with that. So what does it smell like? Right, right, right. Right? And then you do the same thing going after, back and forth, back and forth, and adding something to it. Draw a picture of what the plate looked like. Okay, one little thumbnail. plate, And then they've got this scene that they have built that has tied into it some sensory stuff, some emotion stuff actions that took place. And then they can write from that framework. And when you've seen it all spelled out like that, and you know what the key moments are, it can help you to expand.
1: I love that stabbing the meatball idea because something has had to have happened for the person to be stabbing the meatball, right? What was said was someone kicked under the table, right? So if you can just identify one moment from there, then you can really expand out like that.
0: Yes, I think you and I, Kate, should call it the stabbing the meatball exercise from now on. I,
1: I think we should. <laughs> All right. TM. <laughs> All right. So, Linda, I'm going to ask the question people like the least, which is what books do you think that, you know, elementary classrooms or middle grade classrooms or YA, if you want to, you know, if you've been, whatever you want to say, but pick an age range that you think, you know, elementary classrooms or middle grade classrooms or, you know, high school classrooms, what books do you recommend? Oh, I know people don't like it, but you know, I love this question because I always hear about some books I don't know about. So I think it's a really important question.
0: Yeah. Um, so, and my hesitation, of course, is that I always go back to the ones that are useful to me. Sure, but that works but, though. Yeah, sometimes. So, if <laughs> we want it can be, um, it can be difficult content-wise. Mm-hmm. But if you want to talk about expanding and contracting moments, okay, the first chapter of Jason Reynolds' book Ghost. Oh. He's a master class. Mm. I mean, in in that book, Castle, he's mostly killing time at the beginning. Mm. He's actually sitting looking through the window of an exercise place where people are walking on treadmills, right? Mm. And all of it is like people going nowhere, him talking about maybe, you know, winning a Guinness book of world records. But but he's not doing anything. And by the end of the chapter, he makes a decision. Oh, but in, but also in that chapter, there's a real flashback to the time that he ran fastest in his life. And it's a difficult moment. So I recommend that teachers read that, that book first before they share it with um, their classes. But I think for, for middle grade, for expanding a key moment, um, for characterization, that book is a masterclass. Here's a weird one, and I let me see if I have it. Hold on, I'm leaning yep. over. <laughs> I don't want my headphones to come out and yet. So, do you know Chicken Soup Boots by Myra I, Coleman? I don't. It's an odd book. I would tell my students, it's not really a picture book. It is a book with pictures. Sure. But it is sort of a book about all the things that people do for work in some ways. It's funny little stories and it's family. And I think that any one of the pages in this book might be an interesting, weird mentor text for a kid to write about someone in their family or someone who does a job that they're interested in the voice is really really unique but what i think it encourages is for people to write with their authentic voices okay. um, you know you know how in your family you have your family slang and yep. your silly ways of talking this book encourages you to use your family slang in its own way and to find your own voice and let's see i just read um here's here's another one for for YA I just finally read um everything sad is untrue. I don't know that one by there. Daniel Neri
1: Oh oh yeah okay yes I do know that one.
0: Um yeah. been out a while. I read the beginning of it really early on and um I again I think I'm really interested in the way people tell their own stories Mm -hmm. yes sometimes it's the author's story and sometimes like in the case of of the Jason Reynolds book it's it's sort of how the character tells his own story but how you structure that what you avoid what you tell why you tell what language you use to tell what feels familiar what feels distant and I think that for kids and teenagers, what all three of those books do is validate both the huge life-changing things and the tiny small things, like eating sunflower seeds, or the made-up language that you had when you were a little kid, or the silly pet phrases that people have for one another, that that specificity is what makes the story authentic and in some ways this gets back to our our earliest discussion about the midwest we tend to think about the midwest in generalities we give specificity to other um, settings in our literature but we just think of the midwest as the midwest is the midwest and part of telling an authentic story is allowing the specificity of any culture to come through and that every culture um, that you come from, if you bring its specificity to your writing, that's important work to do.
1: I'm taking notes everyone,
0: that's why there's (laughs) silence. I was gonna say, I think one thing that when I was really little, So it's not like I ever thought I would be a writer when I was really young because I honestly, when I was very young, thought all the books had already been written and all the writers were dead. (laughs) Even though I was waiting for the new Judy Bloom, I was still thinking that somehow this had already been done. But I was also thinking nothing important has happened to me or will happen to me. Okay. Right? And not honoring my own experience. And I think we all know that Just trying to capture and grapple with all the small moments of a life, that's a valid and valuable thing to do. Whether we want to try and publish those things or just sit in them and with them and allow them to be acknowledged as part of who we are, like that's important stuff to do. And if we think that it all has to be, oh, there's this wonderful, um, Mr. Rogers anecdote, and I wish I could quote it for you, but it was, it was after a really tragic event at a school where the person engaged in, in doing what was a terrible thing said, tomorrow, I'm going to go to school and do something big. And Fred Rogers response was like, what if he didn't feel he had to do something big in order to be good? Yeah. What if just being and doing something important but small was something that we honored more often? And and I feel like if we can do that with our students, um, we can get them to do their most authentic work. And still, they can write about like things blowing up and Star Wars and fan. Of, like all of that can happen, but the honesty and the thing that makes it valuable is the small stuff that's authentic.
1: That's blah, beautiful, blah, Linda. No, it's beautiful. <laughs> oh, I pontificated. Ah. Yeah, that was gorgeous. That was that was that was exquisite. So, um, I almost want to end there, but I but I won't because I wanted to do keep the ending the same. Which is what's something that's been bringing you a lot of joy lately.
0: Oh, so many things, but I will name three. Yeah. Um, one, I think it's really important for me to have something to do with my hands sure. or to move. So I'm just knitting up a storm right now <laughs> i I just am I'm knitting a very intricate cable knit sweater and the feeling of that the wool in my hands and the repetitive motion occupies a part of my brain that lets the rest of it do its thinking and being, which I really, really appreciate. And we all know that we have students like that, too, right, who need to have something to do. So that is one thing that's giving me joy. I know I already brought up Myra Coleman, but I am infatuated with her new book, Women Holding Things. I love the little bit of writing in it and the whole lot of painting in it. And there's something about her outlook where she's, you know, she reads the obituaries first thing every morning, and yet is filled with hope. Like, there's something about holding both those things that comes through in her work. So that is giving me a lot of joy right now. And I still have some apples left from apple picking. Yeah. Um, And a good cider donut will always bring me
1: it's so true. Mm-hmm. We, we had so many apples on our tree this year. We just we couldn't keep up with them. We had just vats and vats of homemade applesauce. So I do want to say something that's brought me unexpected joy this week is I have spent a ton of time kicking a soccer ball around in the front yard, yeah. which I have not done in 10 years. And I actually woke up this morning dreaming about kicking a soccer ball. And I was like, wow, I think that's the first in 49 years. <laughs>
0: but that's it right like it's this really simple movement there's there's
1: joy in inhabiting one's body no it's true and there's joy in actually like coming home you know and they were out playing in the yard and i just hopped in there and i was like when's the last time i've done that i honestly can't remember the last time i pulled in the driveway and just started playing in the front yard um i mean it's a gift right it's a gift i could have been doing every day and i haven't done it why not you know why haven't i done that you know um it's just it's so freeing just uh Instead of just going on to the next thing in your routine, just doing something completely different. So love it, yay! <laughs> well, Linda, this has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for inviting me. I feel great.
1: <laughs> oh, good. I'm so made glad. me feel great.
0: So thank you. This too has brought me joy.
1: Oh wow! You just made my day. Thank you, Linda. <laughs> All right. Take care. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Chalk and Ink with Linda Urban. Want to win a signed copy of one of Linda's heartwarming books? Tweet or retweet this episode and be sure to tag Linda and me. Or go to www.katerina.com podcast and make a comment on this episode's post. Or make a comment about this episode on our Chalk and Ink Facebook page. Or become a Chalk and Ink Patreon supporter. Please complete one of these actions by Friday, November 25th. The winner will be announced on Friday, December 2nd on the podcast as well as on Twitter and on our Facebook page. Speaking of December 2nd, it's homework time. Before our next episode, please read one of Tori Maldonado's fantastic novels. Secret Saturdays, published in 2010, is markedly different from his most recent releases, Type and What Lane which pubbed in 2018 and 2020, respectively. Tori talks about the cause for the shift and how it stemmed from observing readers in his classroom. Want to support the podcast? It's easy. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash chalk and ink. And with one single click, you can buy me a latte. No subscription necessary. Finally, I want to give a shout out to Sarah Brannon for Chalk and Ink's podcast art. If you haven't read Sarah's book, Uncle Bobby's Wedding, check it out. It's on the ALA 2021 Rainbow List and Bank Street's Best Children's Books of 2021. I look forward to talking with you again soon. Take care. Bye.